Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Last week we considered how we typically respond and how we ought to respond whenever we encounter the unexpected, what we didn't plan for, what we didn't want to happen in our lives. Looking at our human nature through the lens of David, we witnessed how easy it can be to believe we have to save ourselves rather than to trust in the Lord's salvation. It was both a sobering and challenging story as we saw firsthand how whenever we try to be the God of our own lives rather than look to the God of all life, we end up doing great harm, not only to ourselves, but to others. As David attempted to do whatever he had to do to preserve his life, his situation not only worsened, but along the way, an entire community was destroyed in the process. But now, as we continue in 1 Samuel chapters 23 and 24, we confront an entirely different question. What happens when circumstances appear to line up in our favor? Maybe not exactly how we anticipated, but still presenting us with an opportunity to resolve a difficult situation. Something happens and it looks like we're being handed the answer to all of our problems. What then? What about if the answer before us is seemingly not clear cut? Whether, what if it's questionable about whether it's the right thing to do? And let's add yet another wrinkle to this scenario. Suppose that in that instance, a fellow believer claims to have a word from the Lord and endorses the possibility before us that we're unsure about, telling us it's a sign of God from God and that we should take action. When all the stars seem to align in a given moment, is that an indication of God's will for our lives? How do we interpret the events and opportunities before us as to whether we're being offered divine direction or not? These are the questions David will wrestle with in the next chapter of this story. And as we observe what happens to David, let us gain some perspective and insight for navigating similar moments in our own lives. Does every open door or window mean that God wants us to go through it? Let's listen and find out. Here's 1 Samuel chapter 23. Good morning, Grace. I will be reading the scripture lesson from the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, beginning at verse 1. David spares Saul's life. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. 
With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, we're looking at both chapters 23 and 24 today, so keep those Bibles open. David continues to remain on the run as a declared enemy of the state by King Saul. When we last left David, he was confronting the devastating wake of his attempt to take matters into his own hands apart from the Lord. In trying to save himself, David had cost an entire town of people their lives. But now, as we turn to chapter 23, David is a changed man. He's no longer trying to go it alone. David is no longer looking out only for himself, prioritizing his own self-preservation above any concern for others. No, as news comes to David of a Philistine attack upon the village of Calah at the western edge of Judah, about three miles southeast of where David is hiding out, David purposes to defend his countrymen. However, before he acts, David does something he didn't do at all the last time we were with him, at all in chapters 21 and 22 of 1 Samuel. No, here in chapter 23, David inquires of the Lord. He prays, seeking God's affirmation of his plan. And even though the Lord gives David the green light, David's men express their reservations about attacking the Philistines with so small a company. I mean, the Philistines have greater numbers and stronger forces. And so just to be clear, to reassure his men, David again prays to the Lord, seeking direction. And God again offers David both approval and assurance of his next move. The Lord directs him not to hesitate in going down to Calah, emphatically promising David that he, the Lord, would give the Philistines into David's hand. So, following God's lead, David and his men soundly defeat the Philistines and rescue the village of Calah. David's act of intercession comes, however, at a cost. It reveals his location to King Saul. Now, mind you, it's the king of Israel, Saul, who should have come to the rescue of his people rather than David the fugitive. But that only reinforces, what happens here only reinforces just how far gone King Saul is. He doesn't celebrate this victory over the Philistines, the deliverance of his own people, because Saul, in his obsession, has no other purpose than capturing and eliminating David. It's all he's about. That's it. And King Saul, ironically, while he wouldn't go to Calah to save the people against the Philistines, when he gets word that that's where David is, now Saul will go to try to save himself in Calah 
against the perceived threat of David. And from what we're told, evidently the layout of the village only offers one gate by which people could enter and exit the town. Therefore, Saul confidently boasts, the Lord has already delivered David into his hands. And to add to insult to injury in this moment, the very citizens of Calah, despite David's intervention on their behalf, not wanting to face the wrath of the king like the people of Nob back in chapter 22, the citizens of Calah plan on turning David over to Saul whenever Saul arrives. And David receives this news when, rather than letting his fear get the best of him and trying to control what happens next, David prays to God yet again, seeking the Lord's counsel rather than taking matters into his own hands. Forewarned by the Lord as to his vulnerability in Calah, he immediately leaves and heads with his men 12 miles below the southern tip of the Dead Sea into the wilderness outside of a town called Ziph. The natural rock formations in this hill country would provide ample refuge for David and his supporters, who have now grown, by the way, from 400 to 600 in total. But as Saul changes course from Calah to toward Ziph to pursue David, and as this cat-and-mouse game continues, something important is emphasized here in chapter 23. That despite having the advantage of the desert strongholds, David escapes day after day, we are told, from Saul's claws. Not because David is more cunning or faster, but because, hear it, God did not give him into the hand of Saul. Beloved, like David, we live, move, and have our being not because of our brilliance or strength, but because the Lord enables us to do so. Let us never forget that. Now, while David is out in the wilderness, Jonathan, King Saul's son, and yet David's confidant and ally, risks his own safety to come and encourage David. And Jonathan's prophetic assurance is just vintage biblical wisdom. He tells David, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because the Lord is with him. Despite how circumstances appear and the way things seem to be going, Jonathan affirms that God will make David king over Israel. In fact, he declares even his father, King Saul, knows this is certain, that the future belongs to David, whether Saul admits it or accepts it or not. And as Jonathan and David reaffirm their covenant of friendship, this is the last time these two kindred spirits will see each other. For despite together anticipating in this moment the day when David would be king and Jonathan would support and help him by his side, that day will never come to pass. That day will never come to pass as Jonathan will tragically die before David becomes king of Israel. Now, while all this has been transpiring, the inhabitants of Ziph, much like the citizens of Calah, betray David's exact location to King Saul. And proving he can be quite persuasive, Saul fawns over the assistance of the Ziphites who are willing to give him information. And he actually manipulates them into becoming part of his spy network and doing a little recon, tracking David's shifting location in the wilderness for him. Now, by all appearances, King Saul may have all the information, the human intelligence, but what we continue to see is David has still got all the insight divine guidance on his side. David and his men quickly shift their location and take shelter behind a huge rock, a mountain-like structure in the desert of Moan. King Saul remains in hot pursuit, however. He's closing in fast on David. Saul's got the numbers on David and his men. 
There appears to be nowhere left to run or hide as chapter 23 draws to a close. But once again, God's providence proves to be David's refuge as news suddenly comes to Saul that the Philistines are invading Israel. Forcibly diverted from his own personal vendetta, Saul breaks off his pursuit of David to defend the fate of the nation. And with his temporary breather, David and his men relocate 14 miles east of Ziph, away from any nearby villages or towns, near the Dead Sea's western shore, to a place called En Gedi, which still today, if you've ever been to Israel, stands as a beautiful and vast oasis of waterfalls, pools, wild goats, and lush vegetation. And that leads us to chapter 24. As chapter 24 begins, we're told nothing about the conflict with the Philistines. It's really, really odd. No details are provided as to how and when it got resolved. Instead, we jump right back into Saul's pursuit of David. Saul, with 3,000 of his finest soldiers, giving him a five-to-one advantage over David, who only had 600 men, King Saul resumes his search for his declared rival. However, the tables are quickly turned as Saul and David meet again. Previously, you remember at the end of chapter 23, Saul had the upper hand and David was almost boxed into a corner. But now, Saul makes himself vulnerable and David gets the jump on him. David gets the jump on Saul when Saul, looking to relieve himself, happens to choose for his toilet the same cave where David and his men are hiding deep in the recesses. Saul is completely unaware of the mortal danger in which he has placed himself. David's men, on the other hand, David's men, on the other hand, interpret the king's exposed position as divine provision, a sign from God, providing David with the opportunity to free himself from his enemy once and for all. They even go so far as to present a word from the Lord to David as further evidence that he should follow their counsel. Now, interestingly, we find no such evidence recorded in the Bible of any such promise being made by the Lord to David. Well, David, after trying to save himself and all the disaster that followed, we've witnessed David so far make an, an important course correction, right? We've seen that up to this point. David's done a complete 180. David has gotten back on track, relying on the Lord to direct his path. We see it again and again, trusting God with the outcomes. But now, at the end of chapter 24, it's the moment of truth for David. Time stops as David confronts what appears to be a golden opportunity, a divine appointment, the answer to all his troubles. Those around him, those around him are throwing around a lot of pious talk, urging him to seize the day, assuring David that God has opened a door for him. And so it's his door to walk through. Initially, David appears ready to walk through that door as he sneaks up as King Saul is taking care of business. But then, surprisingly, David pulls his punch. David pulls his punch. Instead of running Saul through with his sword, David cuts off a section of the king's robe. Now, we might in this moment admire what David does here, crediting him with such restraint and tact, but David, after doing this, bears no such pride in the actions he's just taken. Immediately, we're told, David is struck by a crisis of conscience. He confesses to his men that he has done a great wrong against God and forbids them from further harming King Saul. But David doesn't stop there. He steps out of the cave after Saul leaves and reveals himself to the king. David puts himself in a position of vulnerability as he not only comes out into the open, 
but bows down low before Saul, addressing the king not as an equal, but as his Lord and his father. David conveys respect and affection for the man who has attempted on more than one occasion to take his life. The person who's forced David to be where he is right now, to resort to living in caves, constantly moving from place to place, fearing for his life. As David waves the cut-off piece from the king's robe in the air, as he does this, he expresses his innocence and loyalty, and he forgoes taking any vengeance against King Saul, leaving judgment in the Lord's hands, trusting in God's vindication of him. Saul, for his part, is stupefied and almost speechless. After listening to all this in stunned silence, the king is moved to tears, calling David his son. Saul confesses David is the better man. He invokes God to bless David for his righteous treatment of him. Saul even acknowledges that he's fighting a losing battle, that David will become the next king of Israel. And Saul therefore asks David to spare and not cut off his descendants once David finally takes the throne. David doesn't hesitate in making this vow. And then Saul and David go their separate ways. They go their separate ways for now. While the king's remorse was seemingly genuine, he does not yield the throne, however. And David has already learned the hard way that Saul's contrition would only be temporary. While this particular battle may have been over, Saul's war on David was far from finished. And so David, we're told at the end of 24, retreats for protection in the stronghold, a fortification somewhere near Engedi, perhaps what is modern-day Masada. I don't know about you, but as we reflect on this episode in David's life, I take great encouragement in the humanity of David's relationship with the Lord. Particularly, I find comfort in the fact that even as David was clearly a changed man, no longer trying to save himself, but instead looking to the Lord, Despite all of that, he still stumbled along the way. While there are several positive moments for David in these two chapters, make no mistake, at the decisive moment, he screws up badly. David nearly throws Israel into a civil war. Imagine what would have happened if he had killed King Saul. David didn't always make the right choice. David had to keep learning what it means to trust in God, and that means so do we. David's story reminds us that like him, from our end, our relationship with the Lord is a work in progress. And if we go back to that scene in the cave, it's pretty telling. It's pretty telling that David's constant conscience struck him immediately after what he did to King Saul. It strongly suggests David was this close, right on the edge, of taking Saul out of the picture. And even his clever counter move in that moment, as he pulled his punch, that clever counter move of cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, sent the wrong message. You see, the edge of a person's garment in the ancient world communicated his or her social standing, who they were. The hem of a king's robe was especially ornate and identified him as sovereign. So in cutting off this piece of King Saul's robe, which Saul may have laid aside as he relieved himself, David is doing more than proving he didn't kill Saul when he had the chance. It's also not so subtly making a statement that David could cut off Saul's reign just as easily. In other words, it was a power move. It was a power move. David was laying claim to the kingdom. It was a passive but still viable form of attack on Saul as king. This is why David instantly regrets what he's done. Because by the grace of God, David realizes any attempt to take the kingdom from Saul was contrary to God's will. What's insightful for us here is what we can learn from David's experience. 
both from his near tragic mistake, but also from what happens next. We learn several things in this encounter, several things that we should pay attention to. First, first we learn that we should question a common Christian saying. Have you heard it before? The saying is, when God closes a door, God opens a window. My friends, nowhere in the Bible is this declared as divine truth. And here in this moment with David, we clearly see that not every opportunity is a God-ordained sign that we should take action. From David's experience, we learn how easy it can be to misread circumstances and to see what we want to see, to interpret a given situation in a way that flatters our preconceived desires or plans. Sometimes, our mistaken tendency to perceive an opportunity as a sign from God can even be provoked or encouraged by others. We see that here, too. In this story, it's David's men who initiate the conversation, right? There's, they start the conversation confidently asserting that Saul's vulnerability before David, come on, it's a matter of divine providence. His advisors even claim to have a word from the Lord for David. And this word from the Lord reinforces that this is an opportunity for divinely sanctioned vengeance. Go, David, go! David's men believed, as many Christians are often wont to think, that if the circumstances seem right, then the Lord's telling you through those circumstances what to do. But here we have a great reminder that God's will can be misinterpreted by well-meaning Christians. Other believers can be ruled by their emotions and desires. They can see what they want to see, what they want to see happen for us, just like we can. And while David's men may have spoken some truth from the Lord, there was some truth in there that God may have assured David of his presence and protection. That's true. That affirmation was not the same thing as giving David permission to assassinate his anointed, King Saul. David realizes since Saul was the Lord's anointed, it was the Lord's place to remove Saul, not David's. David realized if David trusted in God to give him the kingdom, then it was not David's place to take it from Saul. And so, after initially following their counsel, David rebukes his men and by implication rejects their claim of divine authority, of being led by the Spirit in giving their advice to him. Now, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean we're called to go it alone in our relationship with the Lord. What happens here does not mean that we're supposed to just be Lone Ranger Christians. God made us to be in community together. The Lord is the one who created the church, the body of Christ. Part of the reason for this is because we hear, we recognize, and we abide in God's direction and leading that comes from worshiping and serving together. Seeking or receiving the counsel of other believers is a good thing. It's a necessary, essential part of our journey of faith. However, we must always test the counsel of others. We must balance what we or others hear from the Lord against the written word of God and the spirit of the Lord. It's all three in concert, not one or two at the lack of the other, but all three working together, word, spirit, and Christian community. Just because a door or a window is open doesn't mean God opened it for us. Instead of looking for open doors or windows to go through, it would be better to open up God's word, to open up ourselves to the Lord's spirit through prayer. Notice that's what David does repeatedly leading up to this moment in the cave with King Saul. He's not looking for open doors and windows. 
He's in the word and in the spirit. When the Philistines attacked the village of Calah and David believes that he should come to their aid, David seeks God's counsel. When David's men balk at the idea of taking on the Philistines, David again reaches out to the Lord. When Saul pursues David and nearly has him trapped in evaluating his situation and what to do next, David talks with God. And here, after David nearly makes a fatal mistake, David listens to his conscience. And who is the author and programmer of the human conscience? Our creator, the Lord God Almighty. So in this moment, David, rather than letting something he's just done wrong snowball further, David submits to the conviction of the Lord and adopts a completely different posture. We see it happen at the end of 24. David moves from threatening to kill Saul to saving his life. David forbids his men from harming Saul. David shifts from nearly retaliating against the king to seeking to honor him. To honor him, David leaves the security of his concealment, his hiding place, and openly reveals himself to Saul. Instead of returning evil for evil, David answers with good before everything wrong that Saul has done to him. David talks and treats Saul with respect and honor. David confesses his opportunity to take vengeance on the king, but then vows not to be the one who judges and passes sentence on Saul. David even goes so far as to promise his protection to Saul's descendants and to ensure Saul's memory in Israel. This message, in many ways, is something of a bookend to last week's sermon. Last week, we witnessed David going to one extreme, trying to secure his life and his destiny as David attempted to save himself apart from the Lord. But now, here, in these two chapters, David faces the other extreme, believing that his life and destiny have been set by the Lord, believing that, and yet facing the temptation of a perceived opportunity to secure what God has promised him. Both extremes involve taking matters into our own hands. One involves doing it in spite or without God. The other involves doing so for the Lord, doing God's work for him, putting ourselves behind the wheel, convincing ourselves that God wants to be the passenger in our lives rather than the driver of our lives. Beloved, is Jesus just a passenger on the ride of your life or is Jesus the driver of your life? There's a difference. David's pathway to the throne as we're following it, right? David's pathway to the throne as we're following it continues to be revealed to be a long and winding road. As we witness David's journey, we learn along with him how we are to secure what God has promised us, how we are to secure what God promises us. Following Jesus isn't about trying to cut corners. Following Jesus isn't about trying to speed up the process. Following Jesus isn't about getting ahead of God. Following Jesus isn't about looking for open doors and windows. Following Jesus is about looking, keeping our eyes on Christ. It's patiently and repeatedly trusting God in his timing. It's asking, it's seeking, it's knocking, pursuing the Lord first before we make the decisions that shape our lives. It's listening carefully through the word and the spirit and the company of likewise rooted and submitted Christians, listening not for what we desire and therefore are tempted to want to hear, but listening carefully for what God wants, what we need to hear and therefore may not want to listen to. 
Following Jesus is, as Jesus said, seeking first the kingdom of God, what God wants, and letting the Lord determine when and how all that he's promised will be added unto us. Clarity and conviction in Christ, knowing and following the way of Jesus, derive from a regular posture of relationship with Jesus. Daily, attentive, living in reliance upon the Spirit to shape our thoughts, to form our words, to direct our posture, and to empower and guide our actions. This is what the practices of being in the Word of God, being in daily prayer, worshiping in Christian community, this is what all these practices are about. They're not just things we check off the list. These practices get us in the habit of giving the Lord control so that we won't let go or get ahead of God when we are tempted to do so. For just as the Lord was with David, God is with us. Emmanuel, right? That's what that word means, God with us. That's the gospel, that the good news of God and Jesus Christ for us, living, dying, and rising from the grave for us. This is the good news of God in Jesus Christ, not only for us, but with us through the person of the Holy Spirit. We can ask. We can ask God anything. We can talk to God all the time. We can seek the wisdom of the Lord through the word of God, not in isolation, but applied to the very reality of our lives. The Spirit will teach us what is right and true. Through the word and the Spirit and being in Christian community together, we can learn and grow in wisdom and grace. Relying on the Lord, we can make good decisions life-giving choices, and actualize healthy and just actions in this world. If we cling to God as the Lord holds on to us, the Lord will guide us to live our best life for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.